My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Lucas La Rochelle. The spaces through which we move every day are more than just physical, but rather have social shape and meaning. For instance, the one we call home has a certain feel, certain rules, certain boundaries, certain meaning, while the one we call work is very different, and so on. And it is the people who exist in and move through different spaces whose presence, relationships, and activities shape them and give them meaning. How this happens is not a simple thing, however. What gets experienced, perceived, and remembered about a given place often has a lot to do with power. This is perhaps most clearly evident in the foundational struggle over control and meaning of space on Turtle Island, that of settler colonialism and indigenous resistance. Five centuries of settler violence aimed at ending any vestiges of indigenous control of the land, including the diverse indigenous meanings and shapes and names for that land, and the indigenous survival and resistance to all of those things that continue to this day. Though colonization and resistance underlie everything else, there are other ways that power shapes how space is experienced and remembered as well. What might it mean, for instance, to understand particular places as queer? Maybe once that would most immediately have pointed towards that relatively small number of neighborhoods in major metropolitan centers that were explicitly coded as queer, but the role of such neighborhoods in collective queer life in North America is much less than it used to be, and was maybe never as all-encompassing as is sometimes imagined. So what might it look like, what might it feel like, to collectively notice and remember the queer moments, the queer stories, the queer lives, the queer histories, that are part of constituting everything around us all of the time, but that are so often erased, silenced, and forced out of public visibility in a society that remains, notwithstanding the important gains made by LGBTQ movements in recent decades, oppressively heteronormative and cisnormative. Queering the Map is an online project that is attempting to explore what queer space means and what queering space can look like. The site allows anyone to describe some moment of queer significance, from the fleeting and private to the collective and public, and to associate it with the place that it occurred. It is built on the technology of Google Maps. It has Google Maps capacity to show any place on Earth at any scale, and when you load it, you will see clusters of little black pins marking specific sites. When you hover your cursor over one of the pins, you will see the text, the moment, the memory, the history, associated with that place. Lucas La Rochelle is a designer based in Montreal and is the person who initiated the Queering the Map project. They wrote on the site, quote, The intent of the Queering the Map project is to collectively document the spaces that hold queer memory, from park benches to parking garages, to mark moments of queerness wherever they occur. There are no guidelines to what constitutes an act of queering space. If it counts to you, then it counts for queering the map. Anything from direct action activism, to a conversation expressing preferred pronouns, from flirtatious glances to weekend-long sex parties, 
all are part of the project of queering space. Through mapping these ephemeral moments, Queering the Map aims to create a living archive of queer experience that reveals the ways in which we are intimately connected. End quote. The site was actually offline at the time that I interviewed Lucas. It had been hacked and was down for over a month. But Lucas made a callout for support, and a team of people with a range of coding skills came together, and the site is now back online with improved stability and security. Lucas talks with me about the site, about the hack, and about the radical queer vision underlying the Queering the Map project. I'm Lucas LaRochelle. I'm a designer based in Montreal. The project that we're talking about today is Queering the Map, which is a community-generated mapping project that geolocates queer moments, memories, and histories in cyber and physical space. And so the intent of the project is to explore what queer space means and what an act of queering space looks like, specifically in the context of the current situation in which we move away from gay-specific or queer neighborhoods as the apexes of where queer activity occurs. And so Queering the Map is interested in looking at all of the different other places, all of the different other ways that we can come to understand what queer space means and what it looks like. I grew up in Georgetown, Ontario, and I've always been very visibly queer. I'm a non-binary person now, but when I was younger, I was a girl. So queerness and being a queer body relating to space, relating to other people, has been something that I could never hide from. And so it was, I think, something that I, out of necessity and also as a spatial tactic, as a survival tactic, really embraced. And I've sort of always been really invested in collectivity and collective action. And so in moving to Montreal and in starting university and becoming more politically active, queerness has always been the zone in which it makes the most sense, I guess, for me to do work. So I moved to Montreal and I started studying design and computation arts with a minor in interdisciplinary studies in sexuality. And so a lot of my work has focused on the intersections of these two disciplines and thinking about what role design as a discipline, which is very invested in the act of doing something in conversation with critical theory broadly, but specifically queer theory, what the productive potentials are when those two disciplines come together is something that I continually work at trying to figure out. And so Queering the Map comes out of that And it also comes out of a desire to always be shifting the understanding of what queerness looks like, because I think part of its radical potential is, by very definition, its inability to be defined, it being an identity politic that comes out of a coalitional politic. And so queering the map is very much part of that process of trying to de-individualize, I guess, but through subjectivity or through individual contributions to this larger project in service of a more nuanced, ever-shifting, queered, I guess you could also say, notion of what queer means. I've started to think about it as a living archive in terms of how queer history, queer memory, queer affect is being marked in relation to space and on different temporal levels, in terms of different spaces being marked with histories, collective histories, with individual histories, with very, very recent histories. And so trying to put all of those experiences of queerness, of space, 
on the same playing field and doing my best to take a curatorial stance that is non-curatorial in terms of from the beginning, the intent of the project has been if it counts as an act of queering space to you, the contributor, then it counts for queering the map. And I've really stuck to not trying to have any control over what that can mean. Querying the map functions using Google Maps APIs. Users can click a point on the map of the world and add a story, an experience, a history, a memory, and submit that to the map. The thought process was what's the quickest and most effective way of encouraging people to simultaneously share stories, but also engage in the stories that already exist. I've come to understand it as coming from an academic context and also from just an emotional context as well. The emotional or the very experiential way in which this project came about was biking home from school one day and there's this tree in Jean Mals Park where I had met my first long-term partner. And at that same tree, we had had a couple of difficult conversations. And so in thinking about that tree and biking past that tree, there is this feeling, for lack of a better word, and I'm still really excited that there is lack of a better word, that this project has sort of set out to define or expand this feeling, but I still yet don't have the vocabulary to talk about it. And I'm really excited by that. But I guess what I was interested in is the sort of queer feeling, the queer relation to that tree. That then that tree, through the ways in which myself and this other person related to it, related around it, its presence informed what kind of interactions were going on and what role it has in terms of how my experience continues to be shaped every single time that I go past that tree, that marker of queerness. And so from that feeling and continuing on that bike ride, I was thinking about all of the other environments that weren't necessarily, obviously that tree is not legibly queer, but all of the other environments that act as these sort of like markers of queer feeling in my life. And I immediately could think of about five off the top of my head that held this very particular feeling of either queerness in relation to another person or queerness experienced individually that were heavily marked in relation to space, in relation to geography, in relation to architecture. And then as I continued on that thought experiment, I became a little bit less interested in my own experience of what queerness means, which is located by my social positioning. And so then was moving past other objects, other architectures, other environments, and thinking of what a beautiful and powerful thing it would be to locate queer history all over the place in its micro moments and thinking about history as something that's always occurring. And then from that also, from a theoretical perspective, trying to always destabilize what queerness means and looks like, because I think that that's part of its really radical potential when we feel like we've settled on a definition of queer, like if I have my own sort of definition through which I experience queerness, I think the minute that it ossifies into something concrete that excludes, I think that there's always the impetus to expand it, to interrogate it. And so I think that Queering the Map accomplishes that in terms of multiple voices existing simultaneously, defining on multiple different terms and in multiple different contexts what queerness means and how it feels, particularly in relation to space. And my general 
creative or design process usually functions in that sort of flow of like there's an emotion or there's an effective response to something. And then I kind of go searching for what other people have said about this thing. And so there's theorists whose work really resonated with me, one of whom is Christopher Reed, who has this book published in 1996 called Imminent Domain, in which he goes about trying to mark out a definition of what queer space means. And he settles on a definition, which is that queer space is the collective creation of queer people. That doesn't mean it disappears when we leave. I'm interested in the way our traces remain to mark certain spaces for others, to their delight or discomfort to discover. That quote, that work, definitely became an underpinning of this project in terms of how can we make those traces legible? What's the feeling of knowing the history of an environment as a space of queer activity? And how does that change the ways that queer bodies relate to or feel comfortable in space? And then there's also the work of Jose Esteban Munoz, in which he talks about queer potentiality and the lingering of queer performance and the power of queer performativity in terms of marking spaces and creating community. He says that queer potentiality is always in the horizon and like performance never completely disappears, but instead lingers and serves as a conduit for knowing and feeling other people. And so as someone that's really invested in collectivity, the idea that queer memory or queer affect lingers in space and serves, as Jose Estebamino says, as a conduit for knowing and feeling other people was particularly resonant. And so that theoretical and emotional framework is what Queering the Map rose out of in terms of creating a platform through which space could be demarcated as having been queered. And then calling into question what exactly constitutes that act of queering and what it can mean if we can look at buildings that would be in no way legible as queer, as queer, and how that changes the queer body's relation to space. Give listeners a sense of the range of kinds of things that have been shared on the site. The range has been incredible in terms of the project really functioning as something that is intended to be open-ended and the contributions really end up being that way. So there's anything from tender moments of love and care for another person that either go requited or unrequited. There's raunchy sexual encounters that have been mapped out. There's coming out stories, both positive and intensely negative. There's moments of sort of queer history proper, like buildings in which there used to be a queer bar that no longer exists and what role that played for the community. There are recollections of direct action activism that have been marked out. Australia was a really interesting place in terms of watching Queering the Map grow in terms of divergent politics within the LGBTQ community being mapped out in the same environments. So a lot of posts coming up about the recent yes vote on marriage. And then in the same environments, a more anarcho-queer politic and the spaces in which those politics play out being marked out. Because, I mean, it's important to note that it's a contested issue in terms of whether or not we should be or have been spending the time, money, resources on fighting for gay marriage when there are so many other issues that the queer community faces that have not been focused on. So it's interesting to see those politics exist simultaneously on this map. And 
why is it so important to you and to the project to capture not just what you described as queer history proper and what might be understood as capital A activism, but also those individual moments of everyday life, of tenderness, of sexual encounter, and so on? There's this brilliant, brilliant scholar by the name of Marlon M. Bailey. And I went to what he called, I'd never heard of it before, but a performance ethnography that he gave, a lecture that he gave in the form of a performance ethnography. And one of the things he said at the beginning of his lecture that has really stayed with me was that queer theory, queer action is being done by every queer person in every moment of their life all the time. That queer theory is not just, you know, the Judith Butlers, the Michelle Foucaults, the Jose Esteban Munozes. It's not just the published people writing within the academia, but everyone who is thinking about and doing queerness is doing radical, important work. And so I think that Queer in the Map operates very much from this understanding of the personal as political. And as all of those micro moments of resistance, or if we're contrasting it with the capital A activism, the lowercase a activism, the activism that occurs when one comes out to one's family, when one discusses their pronouns with someone else, they discuss why those things are important, that those things are all part of the larger project of queer history or queer collectivity. And also, if we think about the sort of more historical moments or the capital A activisms, these micro moments, I think, contribute to the moments of the capital A activism. Those moments of the capital A activism, the collective action, require this subjective feeling that these things are important to do the work on making those changes. And so I think trying to put the individual history and the collective history on the same plane and to understand one another's history as our collective history, so one person's experience as part of our entire experience in terms of moving towards a more collective or a more caring or a more community-oriented mode of existing in the world that fights against the neoliberal impetus to individuate is part of the intent behind Queering the Map, mapping out both the personal and the collective histories. What do you hope that a random person on the internet, and I guess I particularly mean a random queer person on the internet, will get out of running into the site and engaging with it? A feeling of connectivity to community. One of the things that I've been thinking about really intensely through this project is the way in which the internet very literally saved my life as a young queer person growing up in an environment where I didn't know other queer people. That seeing those representations of other people with similar experiences to me made it possible for me to continue moving through experiences that were extremely challenging. And I think the response to this project, some of the emails that I've received have been so incredibly moving in terms of it doing that. Someone wrote an email thanking me for doing this project because they were going home to come out to their family as trans and that they had been reading through other people's experiences on this map for the past three days and then had been fortifying them. And if it does that to, you know, one person, if it has that effect, I think then it's done its work in terms of fighting against the feelings of isolation that so many people experience, whether you're a queer person or not. That would be the hope, that there is a community of queer people that we engage in similar struggles 
And if we don't engage in the same struggles, that we need to be there for each other's struggles. That would be what I would like for people to take from experiencing and interacting with Career in the Map. I understand that the site was hacked a couple of months ago. Talk about that. Yeah, so on February 9th, it was. The site had been growing in a period of three days from February 6th to 9th. It had gone from about 600 points on the map, which had grown steadily over a period of six months, to now there's over 6,000 points. So inevitably with that kind of growth, it was spammed and it was spammed by presumably only one person because the message was the same. A whole bunch of points started to appear and pop-ups that said, make America great again, Donald Trump best president. And they had inserted that into the code of the website so that these pop-ups would appear every time that you clicked on a point. And so I took the site down and I posted on the URL, if anyone with a greater degree of coding capabilities than myself knew how to fix this problem, if they could get in contact. And I received an enormous amount of emails, an enormous amount of support, whether it was people offering to help fix the problem or just reaching out, showing their support. There's now a group of people that I'm working with in a GitHub, which is a code repository in which multiple people can collectively work on code together. And so we are now working together to get the site back online and more secure so that a spam like that can't happen again which has been the most beautiful process in terms of how this project could have developed, in terms of becoming more resilient in the face of opposition, and that that resiliency comes through a community coming together around the desire for this kind of project to exist. So it takes it away from my own individual. It's, it's no longer my project, it's the community's project. And it was that way on the front end, but it's now that way through and through which has been an incredible experience. And I'm meeting and developing via the digital world relationships with these wonderful people that have reached out to help. And maybe relate the attack on the site to the anti-queer hostility and violence that, of course, persists in the face of the many liberal straight assumptions that, oh, well, it's all fine now that we have gay marriage. Oh, God. Yeah, that's, that's one of the horrifying realities when we imagine that gay marriage means that every queer person ever is doing fine. I mean, we're in a much better place now, obviously, in certain parts of the world. That's not the case everywhere. Even the project itself is a testament to what a terrifying idea that is. I mean, the terrors of neoliberalism and the ways in which it makes us blind and complacent to enormous social dilemmas once they've been, you know, spoken about once or something like gay marriage has been passed and therefore everything must all be fine now, as if that is the only issue or as if that was even ever the most important issue. And I think that Queering the Map makes that point very obvious in terms of, I mean, one thing I can think off the top of my head is a lot of contributions about being against the criminalization of HIV, the enormous amount of work that activists do in terms of fighting that, particularly in a Canadian context. The site, even without the attack, the attack, I guess, makes it very apparent that there is still opposition and that we still have work to do. But I think in so many of the points, there's quite an equal balance of 
you know, beautiful moments of queer experience and also devastatingly challenging experiences. So I think even without the attack, it points to the fact that we still have significant work to do. We still have significant things to unpack on a social and on a legislative level. So outside of this specific project, talk more about the ways in which you see your work with design intersecting with your commitment to queer theory and queer political interventions. One place to start would be a frustration with the kind of incredible thinking that comes out of academia, but the way in which it falls flat or stays within the walls of the academy. I see design as a means through which to make really valuable ideas significantly more accessible and accessible in ways that aren't just through writing. I guess in terms of like what role it plays within an activism is just getting messages across to a wider variety of people and mobilizing people together through different means and taking concepts that are abstract and putting them into practice and seeing how they play out in practice because I think that the academy is brutal in terms of the ways that ideas that could have radical potential stay cloistered and stay inaccessible. So I see a lot of value in seeing how these sorts of theories play out when applied. And queer theory is the zone in which I spend an enormous amount of my thinking time. And so it becomes natural that that's where my design work would come out of. I mean, I think of like the history of HIV AIDS activism in North America and the significant role that design and aesthetics played in terms of communicating messages, in terms of doing protest, in terms of doing the work. So beyond getting the site back online, what changes do you expect for queering the map over the next while? Uh, And listeners should keep in mind that the site was not yet back online at the time of the interview, but it is now. What we've done so far is to develop a moderator panel as it existed previously. Absolutely anything that was submitted to the map would be added to the database and would be added to the map, which was operating from a really healthy dose of techno-utopianism that got the project really far. And there hasn't been anything save the Trump spam that was added to the map in the eight months that it was active online that needed to be removed. But as the project grows, inevitably, the necessity to filter out both hate and spam, but also anything that could be deemed unsafe, like putting exact addresses or phone numbers or people's names unless they're being voluntarily submitted. So having a little more control over that in terms of keeping the project secure and free from hate and spam is really important. And then also shifting over to a better database system in terms of saving all of the stories that have been added so that the website doesn't crash. So those are the biggest changes for now. And we will see what happens when it goes back online. You have been listening to my interview with Lucas LaRochelle of the Queering the Map Project. To learn more about it, or to enter your own queer moment, memory, or history, go to queeringthemap.com. That's queeringthemap.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. <laughs>